On this episode of the BYO Nano podcast, we're getting an update on the 2021 hop harvest direct from Yakima Valley. And then our nano brewer profile brings us to Mystic, Connecticut. And finally, we'll chat with the chef about the holidays, pairing, and creating a good food program at your small brewery. This is John Hall, and welcome to episode 23. It seems like a new year will be here before we know it, but there's still plenty of work to be done and a lot of angles to cover and think about in the nano brewing segment. No matter the season, hops are always on our minds. And with the 2021 North American harvest over, the farmers have a little bit of time to rest, relax, and catch up on questions. Eric Demeray of CLS Farms in Yakima Valley joins us to talk about the season that just ended, building a brewery relationship, and some hops to think about in the new year. And then we'll head east and go to Mystic, Connecticut for our nano brewery profile on Barley Head Brewing. I'm talking with owner and brewer Drew Rogers about experimentation, distribution, and building a regular customer base in a tourist destination. And finally, November means Thanksgiving. With Food on the Mind, we're talking with the beer chef himself, Bruce Patton, about what small brewers without a formal kitchen can do to offer a food program. Support for this episode comes from BSG. Did you know that BSG sources hops directly from growers and processes them in their FSSC certified facility in Yakima Valley? From Azaka to Zappa, BSG's hops are pelletized for optimal dispersion in the boiler or FE and packaged in nitrogen flushed bags to preserve all of those tasty aromatics. To learn more about how your hops go from farmer to fermenter, get in touch with BSG at letstalkhops at bsgcraft.com. ABS Commercial is excited to be part of today's podcast. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. Another part of ABS's commercial's ongoing give back campaign, they'll be giving away another ABS keg Viking keg washer on December 10th. So head on over to abs-commercial.com to enter to win a keg Viking. And Yakima Chief Hops has officially launched their newest product, Cryopop Original Blend. YCH has combined their proprietary cryogenic hop processing technology with cutting-edge lab analysis to create cryohops with a pop. Using this new research to identify the most beer-soluble hop compounds that survived the brewing process, they engineered a supercharged pellet that shows massive tropical, stone fruit, and citrus aroma in your finished beers. Learn more at cryopopblend.com. And if you haven't already, make sure you reserve your spot for the fourth annual NanoCon Online, which takes place on December 3rd and 4th of this year. With two days of more than 30 seminars and workshops for the Nano Craft Brewing segment, be sure to mark NanoCon Online on your calendar or sign up at nanocon.beer. All of the sessions will be recorded, so even if you can't join us live, you can still watch all of the videos and learn after the conference is over. Again, learn more at nanocon.beer, and I'll see you there. It's been a long two years for everyone, but for hop growers, especially in the Pacific Northwest, it's not only been the pandemic to contend with, but also climate change. 2021 threw some punches at the farms, and they were mostly able to take it in stride. But there are issues to think about and plans to get into place for future years, says Eric Demeray. 
He is the fourth generation farmer at CLS Farms in Moxie, Washington, in the heart of Yakima Valley. The hops have been harvested and there's a little time to relax. So I'm grateful he took some time to chat about the last season and what lies ahead. You know, this year was was another year full of full of uh, full full of adventure, so to speak. And, and uh, it seems like that's a little more of the norm now, but that that's okay. We're we're pretty good at adapting and and uh, moving through it. But you know, we I think there was a good sense of optimism. I mean, obviously with COVID in the 2020 year and um, all of its effects, and certainly by springtime and early summer. Um, you know, there was, there was quite, quite a bit more light at the end of that tunnel. And, um, we were seeing brewers, um, come back into the market, feeling a little bit more, uh, secure about, um, secure about their purchases. And so, you know, and I, and I think there was a decent level of, um, optimism in the, in the hop grower space as well, because, we had, you know, crappers in general had gotten through the, had gotten through the, um, the major, the major COVID uh, problems. And it felt like, you know, there was kind of light at the end of the tunnel. And so, so we, we were doing, you know, we we're pretty confident and felt pretty good. And, you know, the acreage, uh, you know, we did a good job collectively at keeping the acreage a little bit uh, managed and not, not such an explosion in acreage. It, it really, if we get too many acres of hops, it really create and get an oversupply in the long run, in the short run, it's, it's healthy. It's, you know, in the short run, it's good for crab brewers because pricing goes down, but yeah. in general, what happens over the long run with, with those excess bubbles of supply is that, is that it creates shortages later down the, you know, multiple years down the road. And so a good balanced supply is, is helpful. So, so, you know, I think the acreage is pretty well aligned with, um, with, with the craft needs. And so we, we, uh, you know, the acreage was up a little bit, uh, not a ton, um, felt pretty confident going in. We're hearing good things from our friends in the craft world, um, some positivity and, and, uh, and so we got into late third week of June and one of the big, one of the big problems we we encountered this year that uh, came out of left fields a little bit is we had a heat event the third week of June and first week of July and and it was really a heat event that was in another league. Yeah. Um, oh, it was, it was brutal. Yes, yes, and it it was you know kind of kind of you know statistically it would be called a thousand year event. You know those it was that kind of a situation and and so that that created that created uh, effects on the hops and it was dramatic. I mean, especially certain variety groups, it was dramatic. Other, some certain varieties took it well, some didn't, which is normal. Um, and so we struggled uh, in certain groups, citrus struggled quite a bit, you know, cashmere struggled quite a bit. That was a tough one. Um, uh, Eldorado, our variety did well. We were actually pleased with it. Um, and so some, some did well, some, some struggled, uh, uh, got through it, but, you know, kind of fast forward and, you know, we kind of thought by the end of August, you know, there was quite a bit of recovery in the plants and we actually were forecasting a slightly below average crop, but not dramatically below, uh, crop. And, um, the one major thing that it did was it delayed, uh, the aromas, the aroma development and the maturity development. 
in the hops. And so really, okay. Yeah. And that, and that, you know, we had, we, on our farm, we started uh, seven days later than I've ever started before. So quite a bit of, quite a bit of change there. And, you know, and, and we really harvest hops now based on their aroma, you know, their aroma and not necessarily their alpha acid level or dry matter level. Some of these other metrics we used to, we used to um, go by and, you know, there's so much pressure and there's so much desire by crappers to have those strong, robust aromas that we, that we, that we delayed harvest. But the problem with that is, is it, it kicks you out later on the back end too. You can't just turn the hop harvesters up quicker, so to speak. And so, um, so there was those challenges is making sure each variety group was in its aroma, its proper aroma window, which took some adjustment. Um, the other issue is, is we had a, in the Yakima Valley had a, had a, uh, a fire, a forest fire above Yakima, about 35 miles from Yakima. And that created some smoke issues. And that was a challenge as well, working around that. And we're still learning how to deal with smoke and, and what it can do to the hops. And, and so that was fairly stressful, fairly stressful as well. So, yeah. How is it looking like that turned out though? I think, I think, um, getting through the crop i think i think everybody worked really hard to adjust their harvest windows to get the aroma right and so the feedback we're getting is uh brewers are pretty happy with that um i think the uh as far as the smoke issues i think um we're doing a lot better job of identifying the lots that have smoke taint on them and 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 getting those off to the side and so um, I think that was mitigated pretty well. Um, yeah. And we're, we're continuing to learn how to do that and getting better at it. Um, and so, uh, you know, between those two events, it was, it was, you know, it was a little stressful getting the crop in and, and getting the lots right for everybody. Um, I think yield wise, the crop um, wasn't quite as good as we thought right at harvest it, okay. but it wasn't bad as we thought it was going to be in june when the heat hit so if that makes sense sure um just just on the on on the smoke because you know taints one of those words that like, makes people nervous but yeah. um the ones that you've put off to the side are can those be used like is there a market for it is there interest in it or yeah is it just okay yeah there's there's a there's it's not a large market, but there is a, a market. There's um, uh, hop extraction products that downstream products that are used in non-brewing, mm-hmm. non-brewing industry, and so they can get moved over there where the smoke taint doesn't doesn't do anything um, to to that product. It's a lot of it's used in ethanol production, some of these things, and um, and so there's that market for sure. And then they're still working on testing and everything, and in a in a in a decent amount of them, if they have low levels of smoke taint, can go into uh, hop extract, you know, for on on an alpha basis, and and they don't see that smoke taint pull through once they get it into an extract product. The higher the high level smoke taint lots, those those pretty much just have to be destroyed. Um, okay. But but there's not a lot of those. There's only a handful of those. And so, 
between these other areas, there's, there's usually places they can be dealt with. You mentioned the, the heat event, and I mean, it was hundreds plus, and in some cases, 107. Uh, some areas were even topping out like 115 at some point, right? It was, I mean, it was, yeah, it yeah, was we really had, bad. Yeah, it was really bad. And then it was really interesting because if you got down into the Willamette Valley where in Oregon where the hops are growing down there, that's really a maritime climate. And so, you know, Yakima to get to 115, it did set records, but we've been at 109 or 110 before and not, you know, that's not totally ab abnormal. 115 is abnormal, but yeah. down in like say Salem, Oregon, anything over just a hundred is really wild. And they had 115 down there. And so it was a heat event that was even really hit on the, you know, the whole state, even the more milder parts of the state. And so, so it, it was, it was, it was definitely, it was definitely, um, it was definitely stressful. I mean, it went five days. I think we had five days in Yakima of breaking temps. And, and I think, I think we felt internally, like if we had one or two more days of it, it would have really decimated the crop. Um, the last day they were calling for it to be 117 and this cloud bank drifted in over Yakima and it went from 115, 16 down to 109 in the afternoon. And it almost felt <laughs> in like the shade. That cloud, yeah. Yeah. It almost felt like that cloud bank saved it a little bit. So, so anyway. Well, but what I wanted to ask was you, you mentioned that normally this could be called a thousand year event, but mm -hmm. clearly you know, things are changing. Um, yep. Thousand yep. years could be yearly or every couple of years, whatever it's going to be. So you need to start thinking about it. And you you mentioned um, that there are certain things that you did to um, to you know to help the the the, the crops along throughout all of this. Um, what did you do? And and now, how are you going to start approaching future years with with this in mind? Yeah, I think the thing we found was was that. Um, um, we found uh, certain irrigation patterns in certain fields uh, helped mitigate it. I think in general, we felt like, like we were pretty, we thought after we got through it that it was fairly amazing that the plants could handle this as well as they did. And then we found certain varieties did much better than other varieties. And so, so I think um, modifying some irrigation techniques and how we handle the plants, um, we learned a lot that way. I think we learned that certain varieties, you know, in, in the breeding program, they're getting really focused on varieties that can withstand heat. And that was clear. I mean, it was very clear between the varieties that couldn't handle it and the ones that could handle it. So I think a lot was learned there. And, and I do think... The hop grower base tends to be pretty progressive, and I don't think there's any lack of acceptance of the fact in the hop industry that uh, climate change and some level of global climate change is, a, is upon us. And, and yeah. what do we do to deal with it? Um, it's, it's, it, it's, there is, you know, we're not putting our heads in the sand, I know for sure on it. And so, so I do, I think overall we felt okay that there's ways that we can mitigate it and deal with it. But 
there's work to be done for sure still. Changing gears just a little bit. Um, I know a lot of times if brewers are of all sizes are buying hops, they're going to go through broker, they're going to go through some of the, the, you know, the companies that are out there, but there's something to be said for the relationship between a brewery and the actual farms uh, and mm-hmm. the actual farmers. And you've been at this for a while. You've gotten mm-hmm. to know a lot of people. Um, when people reach out, uh, regardless of their, of their brewery size, how do, what are the benefits of that relationship of, of knowing the people who are using your hops and then you know, also having them know you? Yeah, that's, that's been some, our farm is, is, is really embraced because I mean, frankly, we just saw that the customer base wanted that. And, and, and we were probably a little bit ahead of others on, on this front. And, and so there's, there are, there are some brewers we do sell direct to there. We sell, we sell a lot of our hops to dealers as well. And so we, we like to kind of say we're independent and we play in all the camps and, and, you know, if you're, if you're a brewer that comes out through a hop dealer that wants to visit visit us, that's great. And if and if you're a brewer that we sell direct to, that's great too. And and if you're a brewer that just knows or have heard about us and want to come out, we always take those visits because all those visits always give us lots of information and we can exchange ideas. And for us, um, especially for small brewers, um, that's where you know, things are happening on the margin a little bit with new styles and new directions. And while individually they are small, collectively they use a massive amount of hops. And so, so we really, really, really like when brewers uh, come visit us and it doesn't have to be attached to a broker or anybody else. And that's one thing that's really changed in the hop industry between the hop industry and the brewing industry in the last uh, decade. And the advantage, you know, for us, the thing is, is it's, 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 it's so advantageous for brewers and growers on both sides of the equation for us to just sit and talk to each other about, about their challenges, our challenges, things that we see. And really we've grown with them. You know, we've, we've had to, we've changed a lot of the ways we farm, a lot of the ways we think we, the way we do things on the farm now are radically different than a decade ago. Um, when we were growing alpha for macro brewers. And so, and so the only way that we could have made that pivot in the hop industry in general could have made in the Yakima Valley in the Northwest could have made that, made that pivot was by communicating directly with brewers. That's, that's the only way it could have, could have happened. And so, you know, there's, there's a major groundswell you know things start small and grow and grow and grow and that's that's the new model in brewing that's that's you know driving hop demand and and so it's it's really important for us to do that and we make relationships and you know we have long standing i mean a lot of these relationships have turned into personal relationships now <laughs> and and so you know those things just make that kind of follows the ethos of small craft as well. And they want to know, they want to know the people they're getting their products from. And, you know, when you, when you communicate one-on-one like that, you know, we're going to do a better job. We're going to work really hard because those are our friends and, and, you know, they're going to do a good job for us because we're their friends. And, you know, that sticky, that sticky component that comes from, 
um, relationships and not that transactional nature of where, you know, the hop industry had gotten to has really, has really changed the dynamic at the farm level for us. And that, you know, a lot of hop growers are, they're large growers, but we're all family farms. There's no corporate, you know, entities and hops. It's all, these are all family, family farms, you know, multi-generational and, you know, and so, and craft is that way too. It's a lot of people just starting it up and small business and doing their thing. So it's been really important to, to get the, to get their needs communicated to us and our needs communicated to them. And it feels like a really good space between the two sides right now. So. I imagine the question you get most often, or at least one of them is what's on the horizon. What's new, what's exciting. That that's, uh, that's what the customers are looking for. It's certainly what the brewers are asking for. Yeah. And uh, it all, <laughs> I guess the, you know, the buck stops with you, uh, since you, you're, you're the one growing, uh, growing the hops. Um, what's, what's, what's interesting you right now that could potentially be on the way up? Yeah. I mean, one thing that's really happened is, is kind of maybe, you know, seven, eight years ago, some of the, you know, the, there's a couple, a couple avenues that are happening here that I think are really great for craft and, and especially small craft. Um, you know, there's been the rise of proprietary, you know, privately owned varieties and, and there can be a little bit of drama around some of that, but, but that's not been a bad thing. That's been a good thing because it's just resulted in, in many more new varieties, um, for crafters. A couple of trends that are happening is maybe five, six, seven years ago, the, the majority of those proprietary varieties were controlled by just one or two entities, but now there are lots of different groups of people mostly all growers or hop dealers who are developing their own proprietary varieties and so now that space has gotten more competitive and there's not five new ones there's 15 new ones and of the 15 new ones there's four different people that own five or four or five people that own those 15 that have never really had their own proprietaries and so so you're going to see this this real, you're going to see this explosion in new, new varieties, new proprietary varieties. They're not all coming from one or two entities. They're coming from multiple entities, multiple growers. And that's a good thing for craft because it, it's a more competitive landscape out here on the growing side. And it's more choice. It's more, you know, different aromas and different, you know, different breeding programs have different angles that they take on things. And so that's a real positive development. I think the, some of the second tier varieties, you know, you had your Citras, your Amarillos and Simcoe's, and those were great leader varieties and still are in many respects, but those are all controlled by one or two entities. Now you have, you know, Strata, Eldorado, Azaka, Idaho 7, uh, Idaho gem. I mean, I can kind of go down the list of these next up and comers <laughs> and those are all owned by different people. Every yeah. one of those are owned by a different person. And, and so, um, so that, I think that's a really positive development. The other thing that's really, uh, been going well is the, the public program, the public breeding program has gotten some new wind in its sales, some new funding, and they've got some great uh, new people working in that space um, that are breeders that are going to, they're young, they're exciting, they want to breed new hop varieties, they want to they get it done. And so, 
and craft brewers tell us they want a good public program too. And so I think, I think you're going to see, I think you're going to see a lot more robust public program as well. And all these developments are, are great for craft. And because just like you said earlier, you know, it's, it's ultimately what craft uh, brewers are doing and what hop growers are doing is making a product for consumers to consume. And the consumers are the ones that are saying they want new, new tastes and new beers and new IPAs. And, and so we, we both better figure out how to keep making new ones for them. Otherwise the party ends for both of us a little bit. (laughs) As we start looking forward to a new year and, you know, uh, hopefully a little bit uh, easier time in the world. Um, we now have two years of uh, COVID seasons behind us. Um, you've learned a lot along the way. What's on the horizon for 2022? Do you think? I think, I think, um, I think in 2022, I think you're going to see, I think acreage wise in Pacific Northwest. I think, I think in general, we, probably feel like the acreage is sufficient to supply craft and so i think you're going to see which is a good thing if we can modify it and not 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 overdo it um so i think you're going to see a i think you're going to see a flat to slightly increased overall acreage based but you're also going to see within that acreage base a lot of rotation um so a rotation away from varieties that aren't as uh uh, aren't don't have quite as much demand as they had before into uh, having into new varieties that have that have increased demand. So I think um, I think you're going to see um, more strata get in the ground. That one's that one's that one's a, that one's really gaining some steam. Um, we have a variety called Zappa. That one's a lot of fun. That small craft is is having fun with. Or that one's got a good, got some legs under it. So I think, you know, you're going to continue to see this next up and coming generation of proprietary varieties um, um, keep expanding, which is great. That's what, that's what craft wants. And we see that clearly, pretty clearly in the demand. Um, you know, I think craft brewers are still trying to get their feet under them a little bit on what to contract, when to contract, you know, what's COVID's implication still the delta variant kind of kind of messed everybody up a little bit and delayed things a little bit so um but i think there's enough acres in the ground to supply craft with its needs i do think the 21 crop in spite of all the challenges is big enough to supply craft but what i would say for small craft is you know as best you can when you get guidance as best you can especially on the newer varieties that you're interested in you know, contracting those, locking those up is, is, is in your best interest. Those will continue to be tight and hop growers, um, generally don't, don't do a ton and hop dealers generally don't, aren't doing a ton of speculation. And so the things, the things that you need and you know, for sure, you know, I would continue to contract as much as you see, as much as you feel comfortable with, although, as hop growers, we understand the challenges that crappers face with trying to deal with COVID and the crazy demand differences it's put up. And so I do think 22 is going to see, yeah, I think it's flat acreage. And I think, but within that flat acreage, a pretty good rotation to the varieties that are really hot and, and brewers are wanting. So, well, 
we got a whole year to figure out uh, if those predictions come true. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and those thoughts, but um, Eric, thanks for on the show and thanks for sharing your expertise and uh, thanks for doing the hard work so that we can all keep drinking those hoppy beers that we love so much. Absolutely. That sounds great. More in just a moment, but first, thanks to this episode's sponsors. From Azaka to Zappa, BSG's hops are pelletized for optimal dispersion in the boiler or FV and packaged in nitrogen flush bags to preserve all of those tasty aromatics. To learn more about how your hops go from farmer to fermenter, get in touch with BSG at letstalkhops at bsgcraft.com. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. They'll be giving away another ABS keg Viking keg washer on December 10th. So head on over to abs-commercial.com to enter to win a keg Viking. And Yakima Chief Hops has officially launched their newest product, Cryopop Original Blend. Using new research to identify the most beer-soluble hop compounds that survived the brewing process, they engineered a supercharged pellet that shows massive tropical, stone fruit, and citrus aromas in your finished beers. Learn more at cryopopblend.com. Soon enough, the tourist and maritime city of Mystic, Connecticut will have three breweries, but you'll still be able to call our next guest the original. Drew Rogers already had a long career in beer, both on the production and sales side, when he opened Barleyhead Brewing four years ago. As you'll hear, he discovered that the inner home brewer in him never left when he went pro, and the chance to once again brew on a two-barrel system to work with small batch specialty ingredients and to be part of a thriving community was really strong, and he had to follow his dream. Rogers and Barleyhead are the focus of this month's brewery profile. I see that you call yourself an experimental nano brewery. That's correct. And and by nature of being small, I imagine that you can experiment a lot. But where do you try to put the focus of your experimentations? Uh, We like to work with local businesses and local farms um, and sort of use what they have available to, um, you know, sort of influence our, our next inspiration. Um, a good example of that is two doors down from me is the Mystic River Chocolate Factory. Okay. Um, they focus on on getting like fair trade chocolate and making you know getting the cacao nibs and making it into chocolate bars and chocolate um, like milk and hot chocolate and stuff in house. Um, so we are getting some cacao nibs from them and making a uh, chocolate porter um, that I'm very excited about. Okay. Brewed it up yeah. uh, last week, should be ready in a week or two. Um, we also work with uh, Whittle's Farm a lot, especially in the fall, uh, which is a farm about five minutes away. We get a lot of fruit from them and make different, uh, you know, different beers depending on the fruit, peach beers. Uh, we make an apple saison um, in a sour apple version of that kettle sour version of that as well. And I imagine having those local connections. So being in mystic, which I, I 
maybe it's just because I'm also on the East Coast, but um, yeah. most people know it as a, a, a pretty uh, busy tourist town. Uh, a lot of folks go there. Tourism is is, is huge business where you are. And mm -hmm. there's always this sort of sense of local when people are traveling. And uh, yeah, you know, they, they want to experience stuff from where they are. And, and beer's always been great for that. But do you find when you have people traveling through that you're able to make that connection with them because uh, yeah, of the other businesses? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, you hit the nail on the head with like, you know, beer is, is great for, um, for that. When you travel to new places, you can try sort of the flavors of the area through the beer. Um, and I like, you know, bringing that to people when, when they come and, and, and check out our spot, not just like, you know, yeah, we make beer, we make it here. It's in mystic. Uh, but also, like, here are all the other things in Mystic that you can sort of experience through our beer. You know, all the, you know, the farms that you can visit and, the, um, you know, the, the, you know, all the different things, all the different, uh, we work with um, different restaurants and uh, like, a, like a juice company, uh, Karma Kitchen down the way, makes these amazing juices and we mix them up with our sour beers. So when you come and try one of those, not only do you try it and enjoy it, but you're also directed to another local business. I wanted to jump back just on ingredients for a second um, and then sort of I'll jump back over to um, – uh, to being in Mystic because uh, one of the things that as as I was preparing for this I, I was searching through and you recently brewed a beer with candy cat mushrooms. Oh yes! Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's a really good example of what we do. So we I got turned on to candy cat mushrooms um, through Mystic Drawbridge Ice Cream and the Denison Bequats Post Nature Center um, at their mushroom festival. So um, every year the Nature Center puts on this cool mushroom festival that they haven't done it the past couple of years um, for obvious reasons. But, you know, basically what it was about was they would get all these mycologists and mushroom hunters and foragers together with local restaurants um, and breweries and stuff like that. And when I was working at Cotro Brewing Company, um, we volunteered to do a thing with them and there was a a mushroom maker in the same um on the same street you know he had a um like built a a mushroom i don't know what you call it farm i guess like okay. inside a factory space um and we worked with him to make like a mushroom ipa and then we put it in at this thing and when i was there i tasted the ice cream shops uh candy cap ice cream and it blew my mind i was like did you put maple in this did you like maple syrup in this did you put walnuts in this and they're like no it just tastes like that huh. so i was like okay wow this is amazing and so um the following year when i had opened up my own uh you know a couple years later when i had opened up my own shop uh i infused the candy cap mushrooms in our stout and it was just like unbelievable. Just the Again, oh my god, the same the, flavors the, of those like, maple and walnut. Yeah, maple and walnut woody flavors. Like just oh my god, 
I, I have one howler of it left in my fridge. Just kicked like a couple weeks ago. <laughs> like, you know, waiting like that, that right moment where you don't want to let the howler sit too long, but like, Oh man, that beer is so good. Is that, are they seasonal? I don't know too much about them. I mean, we, they're, so they're from the Pacific Northwest. So they're yeah. not strictly speaking like a local, <laughs> even though it was inspired by local businesses and local nonprofits. Okay. Um, it was it's not a local ingredient you get them from the pacific northwest we get them dried um and we put them in like we basically soak them for seven days in, uh, in the beer after, for, after fermentation yeah. okay so like so in the brights in the beer in the bright tank after fermentation okay correct. um and we do that in our obscurest stout recipe which is our 100 percent locally sourced stout except for except for the mushrooms that come from the, <laughs> we put the mushrooms in it yeah yeah, yeah. um uh, but it just has such a good flavor is it is that polarizing for customers mushroom yeah, yeah definitely mushrooms for sure i mean but it's like one of those things where the kind of person that's willing to try it has an open mind enough that they're like super stoked on it and someone else who is like, ew, mushroom beer, I don't want it. That sounds gross. Because, like, you know, I kind of get that, <laughs> where you might be coming with that preconception. Yeah. Um, but that that kind of person probably wouldn't even try it, you know, most of the time. So. Being in a tourist town, I, I the last time I drove through Mystic was September of last year. So September of 2020. Uh, okay. And we were yeah. on our way to Cape Cod and yeah. uh, just to finally break free from the pandemic a little bit. And yeah. we, you know, we actually found a, a, a parking space uh, on the street where the bridge is. Nice. And we, we were able to walk around for, a, a, you know, a couple of minutes. Um, but it was so crowded uh, even during a pandemic. And it was tough to sort of move around. And yeah. as, as I was thinking about this, I, I, I recalled talking to a brewer uh, on Nantucket a couple of years ago, uh, maybe right, a, do- yeah. a dozen years ago. Um, and they were saying, you know, in the summertime, they get used to seeing the same people for four or five, six days, and then a whole new crop of people. And then, yeah. you know, they say goodbye to their, to, to the residents of the island in, you know, I guess mid-May, and then they say hi to them again in late September. <laughs> I, is that similar yeah. for, for what you go through there? Uh, there's, there's a certain amount of truth to that. Um, there's also, there's like a, a subset of people that come for the entire summer. So they're like, and they come, you know, they have a house or they come back every summer and live on their boat even. Um, and, and there's, you know, a a group of people that we will see for like four or five months, um, and then not see, uh, for the entire winter. Um, and then there's also, yeah, there are definitely some, um, locals that will avoid downtown, uh, mystic entirely during the summertime. And then we'll see more of them, um, you know, during the off season. And then there's also the people that live downtown. There's a bunch of them. They're, they're down year round. Yeah. They don't care. So are there, is it four years in now, have you been able to develop a rhythm then? Because that's got to be like, – if you have local uh, or regulars, um, I think that's great for any business. But when it can be transient or seasonal or whatever customer-wise, um, is it tough to build a rhythm? You know, I, I think 
we um, had a pretty, we started to get into a pretty good rhythm in the first couple years, but we always hit this point where we would run out of beer in, um, you know, around Labor Day, like around September time. So we'd, we'd make as much beer as we could in the springtime and in the summertime. And then, you know, we'd run out of beer um, right around September. Um, and then, um, you know, the winter time would be very slow and we'd be able to build up our stock again. Uh, you know, as a two-barrel brewery, um, you know, it's difficult to make um, a lot of beer to meet the demands of summertime. Yeah. Um, you, know, you can only make 60 gallons in a batch. We only have four fermenters. So, you know, uh, and, and we <laughs> like to do a lot of like Belgian beers and specialty beers that take a longer time. Um, so in the past couple of years, there's been a couple of changes. I mean, well, shoot, in the past couple of years, we've had like a different business plan. Well, every couple of months well, sure you've had to yeah <laughs> so it's been it's been a lot of adjusting and a lot of like coming up with new ways of doing things um you yeah sorry go ahead uh so yeah so i mean uh w one of the things that we did one of the things that we did um in in 2020 was uh you know we ran out of beer and for the first time ever we um, bought some beer from local breweries as guest taps. So we bought beer from Cottrell. We bought beer from Beard. Um, and, you know, I've, I've known the, the people that work there and own those businesses for a long time. They're both very local. I actually worked at Cottrell for about eight years. Um, and they're, they're larger. I mean, Cottrell, I, they've been around since, gosh, what, the late 90s? Cottrell, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, they have. Um, they are the um, the oldest continuously operated brewery in Connecticut, um, <laughs> and they have a forty barrel brewing system and eighty barrel tanks, and that's that's what I you know uh, cut my teeth on. That's yeah. how I learned how to brew. They got this uh, bottling line that's like from the sixties. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah like, it was like an old soda line, right? Yeah, kind of, sort of. It's it, it, or Frankenstein so of some kind. There's I'm trying to remember the last time I was there. Old soda yeah. line, and there were parts of it that were, you know, so it's like the oldest parts of it were from the '60s, but there are other parts of it that were from the '70s, and then there were some like while I was there, we rebuilt the part of it, parts of it with like you know using local mechanics and like custom made pieces and everything. So yeah. I'd say those those older systems uh, take a lot of maintenance and just like a lot of like just resourcefulness because like you can't just go to the store and buy the part like you have to you know take this broken part figure out what it what of what it should have looked like before it broke mm -hmm. and then have someone build it for you um yeah <laughs> So right, anyway. well, I, I brought us down a rabbit hole. Sorry about that. I was just yeah, trying no, to remember no, no. the that's, last time that I was so there, easy, and it was easy it was for for me to go down rabbit holes. <laughs> I'm, I'm super ADD and easily distractible. Um, but yeah, so so their forty barrel system though came in handy. <laughs> yeah, so it did come in handy because um, so in 2021, Connecticut passed a law that didn't allow me to use guest taps. So I knew that going into September, I, I was going to run out of beer and I wouldn't be able to, 
you know, buy beer from, from my, my neighboring, you know, my fellow brewers and, and keep the taps full that way. Uh, so I had to figure out something else. And what the law did allow me to do was contract brew. Okay. And since I had this relationship with Cottrell, I was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And I picked three of my beers that were kind of mainstays, our, you know, our locally sourced out, our uh, raspberry Hefeweizen, and, you know, one of our IPAs that, um, you know, always hits the, you know, Citra Mosaic IPA. Of course. Always, yeah. always hits that sweet spot. You sure. Know what I mean? Just like a mainstay IPA. Um, so we brewed... Uh, you know, two of those we brewed as half batches, the, the, the raspberry and the stout as half batches and the IPA we brewed as a full batch. And I ended up making 80 barrels of beer, um, with Cottrell. Um, so that, this, <laughs> I mean, that that's quite the jump, uh, from quite the jump. Yeah, two so to no, 40, normally yeah. we can produce about a hundred barrels of beer on, on our two barrel system, making about, you know, two batches a week or whatever. Um, and and this year we were able to produce 180 uh, barrels, or you know, by the yeah. end of the year, I think we should be on target to make 180 barrels of beer. Um, so we did not run out of beer, right? <laughs> um, and it also it allowed me to focus on experimenting more because now I had the you know like you never want to run out of IPA as yeah. a brewery. As a brewer, you might want to be making all sorts of other things, but you cannot run out of IPA as a brewery. Um, so, and, and, you know, it was nice. Like I always sort of have a commitment to my regulars that I'll always have a dark beer on tap. So it was nice to make the stout and always have that. Um, and, and the raspberry beer ended up actually being the best seller out of the three. Um, so, you know, it, it worked out very well. Uh, I'm thinking this this winter. I'm looking at making um, a my box to be ready for the spring. Um, That's exciting. Do another batch of that raspberry, um, and then we're gonna do. We have this saison uh, IPA hybrid that we're gonna do okay um it's that's one of our our sort of in-house favorites kind of an oddball beer but our regulars really love it i really like it so we're gonna go big with that one too um you know so and just keep messing around with it yeah but so you were at control so you're you're used to making larger batches of beer and then when you decide to go and hang your own shingle you go really small Sure. So, so well, like like yeah. everybody else, I started as a home brewer, so I'm yeah. used to doing super small. And then we also had a a 10 gallon system at Cottrell, and uh, once we opened up, Cottrell didn't always have a tap room, mm-hmm. um, but we built one while I was there. And uh, once we opened that up, I started making experimental batches on that a lot, and that ended up being to me my favorite part of the job just experimenting on the small system. And that's one of the things that spurred me on to open up my own shop was just to be able to do that. On, on the small scale, on the scale that was yeah, manageable. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, two barrels, like it's not a huge commitment anytime trying something new, you know, and I can always, if I, 
really going out on a limb, I can always do a half batch if I want to. Um, you know, it slows down my production. But like, if I'm making, you know, the the first time I made that mushroom beer, I only made 20 gallons of it because, like, you know, <laughs> not everyone's gonna want to try a mushroom beer. No. But then every year I've doubled it because, um, you know, people keep asking for it, and we ran out of it, and people wanted more. So I'm like. Maybe it's not a seasonal anymore. I don't know. <laughs> but is it tough to reconcile that sometimes? Because if you leave a larger brew to go to a smaller one, but now you're working to contract out because the pandemic forced your hand. Um, yeah, well, not not just the pandemic. It should be noted. Well, and the uh, state and I'm, law. I'm, I'm going to yeah. throw down some heat okay. here, but the state of Connecticut forced my hand okay. because they changed the law. And when they changed the law, they made it more difficult for local brewers to support other local brewers. So I can no longer have a guest tap. Um, and and I think there were a couple breweries that shuttered their doors because of that, because yeah. like, you know, some people open, I'm, I, this is my full-time job, but some people open up a brewery as, you know, a part-time passion project. And if they can't, you know, if they don't have the man hours to make all the beer and they can't have, some, you know, like get a couple kegs from their neighbors or whatever, it makes it really hard for them to keep their doors open. Yeah. So I, I think that was a, um, not a great thing for Connecticut to do and really, really a tough thing for Connecticut to do in the middle of a pandemic. And, and also, you know, I mean, I, uh, anyway, no, it, but that, that I, <laughs> talk, talk sorry, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always so used to, uh, uh, just these days defaulting to COVID that I forgot that we can also blame the government for terrible things. We as can well. sometimes blame the government for doing stupid things. Yeah. I mean, we, we had a, a nice thing going and they decided to make it, more difficult for us to do things and it you know it came down a lot to the um uh you know other alcohol uh interests in the state lobbying but has that been a tough thing to reconcile though that because your hand was forced you know going from a larger place to your own small place but now relying on a larger place again to sort of keep things going or, you know, to get back out there a little bit. Is is that. I mean, it's, it's made my life easier working with them in a lot of ways um, because I'm not, you know, in the, especially towards the end of the summer, just feeling so drawn out, like trying to, um, trying to make enough beer to, you know, keep the taps open and all that yeah and and working with them i mean i actually from day one i started working with them because we're super super tiny if you ever come check us out it's like just the smallest space imaginable we're in a basement and um i i didn't have room for like a keg washer and an air compressor and all that uh so from day one i contracted with them to wash my kegs so i'd i'd be going over there every other week or so with a load of kegs in the back of my car, back of my SUV. And, um, you know, it, they're all friends of mine. Like, I've you yeah. know, worked with them for almost a decade. So just dropping them off, shooting the shit. Um, and, then, you know, they would very kindly wash my kegs yeah. for a fee. Um, and <laughs> it was it was just, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to quote how much it was, but it's just such a small amount that it's just like, 
totally a friend price like there's no way that yeah. you know, i was like are you sure and they're like yeah it's fine they're just they're they're just the best people that's know? nice to hear so as you think you know i i keep sort of trying to will it into existence of uh not having to worry about pandemics and uh not having to worry about uh you know so much uh, else that's happening uh right now um yeah you know, were there plans that were temporarily um, uh, put on hold for you that you're hoping to get back on track? Um, I mean, I'd have to think about where my head was at a few years ago. Honestly, like I, I've, like I said, I've, I've rewritten the book so many times since then. That yeah, there, I think running a business it's important to, to keep an open mind at any, at any given point. I, I, I always have plans. I always have like dreams that are unrealistic and some dreams that are more realistic and, you know, um, but it's always in flux because things change. Um, and, you know, a cool spot that I was looking at might be not available or, you know, might be more expensive than I thought it was or whatever. Yeah. Um, eventually I think I would like a little more room to, you know, a little more elbow room to do some more barrel aging and things like that. Um, <clears throat> so you never know. Okay. Well, anybody passing through new England or just make it your destination, um, mystic should be, should be on the list for, for a lot of reasons, but now there's a, there's a good beer reason to stop as well. Oh yeah. And, and I should, uh, let me just shout out my neighbors, yeah. um, opened up a brewery down the street, uh, bank and bridge brewing companies. Now there's two breweries in downtown mystic Oh man! and there will soon be a third. Um, the real McCoy rum company, which is, uh, an international brand, um, with local roots, uh, the founders from Noank, which is down the river from Mystic Town that I grew up in, actually is Noank. Uh, anyway, he is opening up a spot. It's not even official. I might be blowing up his no, okay. <laughs> whole thing, but he's opened up in a spot on on our street as well, and he's going to be brewing beer and seltzer, you know, um, mixed drink things, and and like all, all it's going to be like his. Um, you know, test kitchen for his global brand, wow. which is really exciting to have that literally like a stone's throw from our spot. Yeah. You guys so, can have your own, uh, have your own mystic dude, brewery crawl. I'm saying come, come to downtown mystic. There are a lot of good beverages being brewed up in downtown mystic, not just by myself. I like, I like, you know, it's, it's refreshing to hear, uh, folks being excited about other business because you know competition is is what it is and you know when folks are small they're fighting for you know every sure. dollar so so but, you know I'm 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 old school like I mean I'm not old I'm 38 years old but I'm but I'm old school in my mentality about the beer business like the rising tide raises all ships you know we're stronger together all that kind of stuff yeah like, it's been a while I, since I, I I've heard that in, yeah collective economics. Um, and, and the disruptive nature of, of working together. <laughs> um, so, and there's just a lot of value in that. It's one of the things that drew me to the industry. So I'll never give up on that. 
Well, Mystic, Connecticut is uh, beer capital of, of the nutmeg state. So, um, Heck yeah, that's what's <laughs> up. <laughs> Drew, thanks, for, thanks for being on the show and thanks for taking hey, the time. Hey, John, my pleasure. Thanks for reaching out to me and, uh, you know, uh, I really appreciate it. Food isn't always an option for nanobreweries. There are space constraints or lack of desire or simply regulations in the way. But there are upsides to offering food in-house or at least having a restaurant partner nearby. For some insight, I called up Chef Bruce Patton. Based in California, he's known as the Beer Chef, and he's been cooking and pairing beers professionally for more than 25 years. He has some thoughts on the best practices to add a food component when you don't want to invest in a kitchen because of expense or space, but you do want to keep customers in your tap room longer. What do you think makes a good beer and food pairing? Like, how do you know when something works? Trial and error, basically, you put it in your mouth and see, you know, what the reaction is. Ideally, you want a marriage of the flavors going in in your mouth and um, maybe a little bit of cleansing after you like uh, say you, you eat a piece of cheese and you have this cheese all on your teeth and then you take a sip of the beer and the, the beer not only adds to the flavor of the cheese but helps wash that cheesy taste out of your mouth or um, chili peppers and chocolate are other examples of that where you, you don't you know you like that instant burn, but you don't want it to stay there forever. And beer can help sewage that. Yeah. I think about some of the the early days of uh, beer dinners, and you know, I guess I'm going back 20 years or uh, you know, maybe even longer at this point, but um, where a lot of the time it was, you know, the food was really ambitious and the, you know, the beers were solid, familiar styles that, that tasted really good. And these days we're obviously seeing a lot of beers that are incredibly ambitious and are using culinary ingredients in them. Uh, we're trying to mimic foods in, in different ways. Has has the nature of pairings changed? You know, it, are 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 you thinking about food pairings where the food is a little bit more rustic, a little bit more simple, uh, because the beers are so wild? Not necessarily. I mean, it, it, you, you make a good point because that you know, once once more ingredients started getting uh, added to the brewing process makes the flavor profile a little more complicated and therefore like you say you would want something that's a little a little more basic just to kind of be a sounding board for the beer as opposed to having a a happy marriage gotcha i know you're a big proponent of breweries having their own full kitchen where they can you know really uh, work hard to put out uh, flavorful meals that complement the beers that are that are that are in the glass. But for a lot of small breweries with small tap rooms these days, a, a full kitchen isn't always an option, and it's it's not really the same desire. I think that a lot of newer brewers have that maybe some of the older uh, generation did. For small breweries though that are thinking about adding a food component where space is tight and there's not necessarily a, um, a huge ability for a full culinary staff, what comes to mind for you for options of that people can start to think about if they're a small nano brewery that wants to start doing at least some food? Well, there are uh, 
ventless ovens that you don't need a, a hood for, you're still going to need refrigeration and you're still going to have, have to have a, like a stainless steel setup that can be inspected by the health department. Yeah. But, um, you know, your, your beer tender can pop whatever it is into the oven and, uh, you don't necessarily need to, uh, use actual plates. You can use baskets or paper plates or something like that to kind of get rid of that dishwashing aspect because you don't want dirty dishes in with your glassware and you don't want yeah. a second, second washer because again, that's more expense. When, when you say uh, uh, pop whatever into, into these ventless ovens, um, what, what works? What, what are some of the things that you can, that you've come across that make for good brewery specific food that are easy to prepare and, you know, use these, use these types of ovens. Well, if you're going to repair, prepare things on site, again, you're going to need that space and that person. Um, what a few people that have kitchenless operations in my neighborhood buy like hand pies or, or little pot pies, one, one serving pot pies and you just refrigerate them. And then when the customer orders it into the oven, it goes and um, pot pies kind of a classic uh, pub dish and they can be filled with many different concoctions that you can, you know, pair with your particular beer style, whether it be spicy or mild or vegetarian. There are a lot of options out there. Yeah. There's also you know, cold dishes that you can have as well, where no heating is required. And I, I think cheese is one of those classic uh, beer and food pairings as well. And most cities have pretty good cheesemongers these days that can put plates together fairly easily and a uh, little bit of refrigeration space and you, you, um, uh, you're, you're good to go with your, with your customers on that front. Um, what should brewers be thinking about though, if they, if they go the cheese route, uh, you know, a little charcuterie plate. Well, again, you need refrigeration, but you're going to have refrigeration in a, in a brewery anyway. Yep. Um, you might want to have like a separate small refrigerator or, uh, what we call a reach in just like a, like a, re, a refrigerator that you would have in your home only it's uh, up to code. And, yeah. And then cheese, some cheese is going to last forever and some is going to be perishable. So you, someone's going to have to keep an eye on it and, and ride her on it. And then there you're going to need some, some sort of utensils because you don't want people picking up pieces of cheese with their hands. I mean, it's not like it's a crime or anything, but it's, <laughs> Well, clearly you've never visited my kitchen, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's the fastest way that the cheese can get into my mouth. It's uh, utensils right. just get in the way. If a small brewery decides, an animal brewery decides that uh, they just don't want the hassle of having extra refrigeration space or an oven or you know, things to put in it or cheese plates or whatever, um, there are other options that are out there, right? I mean, it's absolutely it's, a lot of places uh, will. Yeah. Do pop-ups. And, Talk to uh, me about pop-ups. Yeah. Well, you, you have a, again, there's a brewery that recently opened fairly close to me and he has these food vendors do pop-ups and there's a lot of them and they're all looking, you know, they don't, 
they're not set up to have their own uh, brick and mortar. And so they, they like going and hosting. And so they set up uh, like a counter, like you would get food at a beer festival, just in a tent with a table. And then they have like ice chest and maybe a burner or not. And so none of it's really on you. You just have to host it in that way. Um, your guests can keep drinking and not uh, get get tipsy as quickly. Sure. And then there's other, you know, in addition to pop-ups, uh, you know, you can obviously order from local restaurants as well. A lot of breweries have good partnerships with, with restaurants that are nearby that can deliver uh, via QR code and everything. How do you feel about I know some places uh, you can go and there's a dozen different menus and um, things are sort of all over the place uh, uh, food wise. Is there something to be said about being selective as to who you partner with in your area so that it complements your beer or fits? Absolutely. Uh, that's, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. I mean, I'm all about a menu having a theme and even if you're not completely in control of the menu, you can be in control of what's coming through your door, coming to your patio or whatever. So it's probably a good idea to kind of curate it towards your uh, selection of beer styles where, you know, some beers go good with spicy stuff. Some beers go good with sweet things. Some beers go good with, uh, cheeses like we talked about earlier and so so it sounds like being being thoughtful and having regular conversations with some of these restaurants that might be delivering to your tap room uh seems smart right if you know right. can yeah. much in the I same mean, way encourage, that yeah encourage them to get in on the beer and food pairing ticket and just you know what you know i have this wonderful lager you know maybe you can come up with something that goes with it and kind of get them involved in the conversation like you say yeah because if you can get a the, the right pairing going or make suggestions and really enhance somebody's experience i think that that really does make for uh for a much better brewery visit uh experience and you, you you know if you're going to go outside you need to kind of uh not just let anyone show up and do anything you want to kind of you know stick to your your plan um like I said, when I when I do menus, I have a little variety, but I don't want them to be all over the place. Is it going to be burgers and sandwiches and salads, or is it going to be spicy snacks, or is it going to be Asian style, or is it going to be? I mean, uh, I mean, the the world is your oyster as far as different choices, but I think, like you said earlier, it's a good idea to kind of hone in on on what's going to go accompany your beers better than anything else. Makes sense. Chef, thanks for taking the time and being on the show this week or this month, I should say. Uh, I really appreciate it. Oh, no worries. Thank you. I appreciate you. Before we go, I'd like to hear from you. What's happening in your nano brewery that you want the world to know about? You can email us at nano at byo.com. And I'll invite you to head over to byo.com slash nano podcast and subscribe to the newsletter, the magazine, and to catch up with great pro brewing content.
New episodes of this show are released on the 15th of each month. So subscribe now and never miss a show when it's released. And you can also do us a favor by leaving feedback on your podcast platform of choice or by emailing nano at BYO.com or checking in with us on all of the BYO social media channels. Support for this episode comes from BSG. Did you know that BSG sources hops directly from growers and processes them in their FSSC certified facility in Yakima Valley? From Azaka to Zappa, BSG's hops are pelletized for optimal dispersion in the boiler or FE and packaged in nitrogen flushed bags to preserve all of those tasty aromatics. To learn more about how your hops go from farmer to fermenter, get in touch with BSG at letstalkhops at bsgcraft.com. ABS Commercial is excited to be part of today's podcast. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. Another part of ABS's commercial's ongoing give back campaign, they'll be giving away another ABS keg Viking keg washer on December 10th. So head on over to abs-commercial.com to enter to win a keg Viking. And Yakima Chief Hops has officially launched their newest product, Cryopop Original Blend. YCH has combined their proprietary cryogenic hop processing technology with cutting-edge lab analysis to create cryohops with a pop. Using this new research to identify the most beer-soluble hop compounds that survived the brewing process, they engineered a supercharged pellet that shows massive tropical, stone fruit, and citrus aroma in your finished beers. Learn more at cryopopblend.com. And if you haven't already, make sure you reserve your spot for the fourth annual NanoCon Online, which takes place on December 3rd and 4th of this year. With two days of more than 30 seminars and workshops for the Nano Craft Brewing segment, be sure to mark NanoCon Online on your calendar or sign up at nanocon.beer. All of the sessions will be recorded, so even if you can't join us live, you can still watch all of the videos and learn after the conference is over. Again, learn more at nanocon.beer, and I'll see you there. I'm John Hall. You can still find me weekly behind the microphone on the Drink Beer, Think Beer podcast, as well as Steal This Beer. Find those where podcasts are found, and I hope you'll tune in. Our theme music, it was created by Scott McCampbell, and we thank him for that. And once again, be sure to check out byo.com slash nanopodcast for all your nano brewing needs. And for now, we wish you all the best for a small but successful brew day. <laughs> <laughs>